Welcome to the Banner of Truth magazine podcast, where each week we bring you selected content from the magazine for your encouragement and edification. Our first selection this week comes from the February 2024 edition of the Banner of Truth magazine. Written by Ian Hamilton, Associate Minister at Smithton Free Church in Inverness, Scotland, it is entitled Thomas Goodwin, the Evangelical Puritan. According to Alexander White, Thomas Goodwin was the greatest pulpit exegete of Paul who ever lived. He further commends Goodwin's sermon, Christ Dwelling in Our Hearts by Faith, as one of the two very greatest sermons in the English language. This is praise indeed, but by all accounts, Goodwin, the Atlas of Independency, was a great divine, and more importantly, a humble and holy Christian. Goodwin was born on the 5th of October 1600 at Rollsby, Norfolk, to godly parents. In the memoir of his life, composed from his own writings by his son, Goodwin tells us that from the age of six years, he began to have some slighter workings of the Spirit of God. He speaks of weeping for sin and having flashes of joy upon thoughts of the things of God. Goodwin later concluded, however, that these early spiritual experiences were but the natural workings of conscience under the influence of a good education, not the soul-quickening operations of the Holy Spirit. Referring to this time in his life, Goodwin later wrote, God was to me as a wayfaring man who came and dwelt for a night and made me religious for a fit, but then departed from me. These early spiritual experiences could not but influence Goodwin's understanding of the working of the Holy Spirit in conversion. Goodwin's parents secured for him the best education they could afford, and at the age of only 12 years, he entered Christ's College, Cambridge, 11 years before John Milton was admitted into the same college. During these formative university years, Goodwin was greatly impressed by the preaching of Richard Sibbs, the heavenly doctor, and by John Calvin's institutes. Oh, how sweet was the reading of some parts of that book to me! How pleasing was the delivery of truths in a solid manner then to me. The next few years, however, saw Goodwin fall into deep spiritual decline and discouragement until, in 1620, it pleased the Lord to bring him, as Goodwin himself believed, to a genuine repentance through listening to a funeral sermon on the text Luke 19 verses 41 and 42. William Barker, in his fine Puritan Profiles comments, This personal experience of the Lord's grace, which he took to be the difference between the natural conscience, though enlightened, and the motions of the heaven-born soul under the influence of the Holy Spirit, coloured his preaching and ministry afterwards. After receiving his MA in 1620, Goodwin became a fellow and lecturer at St. Catherine's Hall, having transferred there from Christ's the previous year. During the next seven or so years, Goodwin struggled for personal assurance of faith. Through the counsel of a godly minister, Mr. Price of King's Lynn, he was led to see his need to live by faith in Christ and to derive from him life and strength for sanctification 
and all comfort and joy through believing. Goodwin later wrote of these years, I was diverted from Christ for several years to search only into the signs of grace in me. It was almost seven years ere I was taken off to live by faith on Christ and God's free love, which are alike the object of faith. Goodwin's experience of God's grace has much to teach us. Above all, that the believer's primary focus is Christ, not himself. I am come to this pass now, wrote Goodwin to Mr. Price, that signs will do me no good alone. I have trusted too much to habitual grace for assurance of salvation. I tell you, Christ is worth all. All that Goodwin had experienced persuaded him of Dr. Sibb's justly famous advice to him. Young man, if you would ever do good, you must preach the gospel and the free grace of God in Christ Jesus. In 1628, having earlier in 1626 been appointed a preacher at the university, Goodwin was appointed lecturer at Trinity Church in succession to Sibbs and John Preston. One of the most significant events in Goodwin's life took place in 1633. Along with Philip Nye and John Davenport, he met with John Cotton to persuade him not to go to New England and to conform to some of the indifferent ceremonies in the Church of England. Far from influencing Cotton, Goodwin and the others became persuaded that Cotton's views on congregational church polity were scriptural. This conversion led Goodwin to resign as vicar of Trinity Church and leave the university, no longer able to conform to Archbishop Lord's high church innovations. The following years are difficult to piece together, although it is probable that Goodwin lived and served in London as an independent minister. In 1639, he moved to the Netherlands, where the ecclesiastical climate offered greater freedom to those who wanted to experiment with congregationalism. For nearly two years, Goodwin served the independent English-speaking church in Arnhem, returning to England in early 1641. The new climate of ecclesiastical and theological openness ushered in by the convening of the Long Parliament enabled Goodwin to pastor an independent congregation in London, and on the 12th of June 1643, he was appointed to be a member of the Assembly of Divines at Westminster. Goodwin was highly regarded in the Assembly both for his scholarship and piety. It is a particular loss to subsequent generations that Goodwin's personal account of the daily debates in the Assembly has been lost. His son tells us in his memoir of Dr Thomas Goodwin that he took a brief account of every day's transactions, of which I have 14 or 15 volumes in octavo, wrote with his own hand. Goodwin became the chief spokesman for the independence in the assembly. These five dissenting brethren, as they came to be known, resisted the Presbyterian majority in the assembly. In January 1644, they published an apologetical narration commending their independent polity. In 1647, Goodwin received an invitation from John Cotton to come and minister in New England. At first, Goodwin was greatly attracted to the prospect of ministering in the congenial ecclesiastical surroundings of New England, so much so that the greater part of his library was on board the ship when the persuasions of some friends, to whose counsel and advice he paid a great deference, made him alter his resolution. It was not surprising that when Cromwell came to power, Goodwin was quickly elevated to positions of some prominence and importance. In November 1649, he was appointed a chaplain to the Council of State, 
and in January 1650, he was made president of Magdalen College, Oxford, where, his son tells us, he made it his business to promote piety and learning. During Cromwell's protectorate, one of Goodwin's greatest achievements was, along with John Owen, to persuade the Lord Protector in 1658 to sponsor a conference of congregational churches at the Savoy Palace. The subsequent Savoy Declaration became one of the fundamental formularies of both English and American congregationalism. With the accession of Charles II in 1660, Goodwin was removed from the presidency of Magdalen and returned to London where, with some of his Oxford congregation, he founded an independent church in Fetter Lane. During the brief illness prior to his death, Goodwin said, I am going to the three persons with whom I have had communion. They have taken me. I did not take them. I shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. All my lusts and corruptions I shall be rid of, which I could not be here. These croaking toads will fall off in a moment. Almost his last words were, Now I shall be ever with the Lord. He died on February the 23rd, 1680, and was buried in Bunhill Fields. Goodwin was clearly a most remarkable Christian. He was a scholar of international renown. He was a greatly respected church leader. He did much to promote Puritan piety. But above all, Goodwin gives the lie that Puritanism is coldly intellectual and narrowly partisan. Goodwin was a convinced independent, and yet he exhibited a truly Catholic spirit towards other Christians. In 1651, he sought to bring unity between independents and Presbyterians in Christ the Universal Peacemaker. He was a man whose whole spirit breathed love to Christ and to his people. He said, Christ cannot love me better than he doth. I think I cannot love Christ better than I do. I am swallowed up in God. During his last years, his son tells us that he read much. Augustine, Calvin, Musculus, Zanchius, Parius, Gomerus, Amesius, and others. But above all, the scriptures were what he most studied. In all his reading, Goodwin was seeking not the mere advancement of knowledge, but an ever-deepening knowledge of his God and Saviour. As his son records, the love and free grace of God, the excellencies and glories of the Lord Jesus Christ, were the truths in which his mind soared with the deepest delight. And it was not merely a speculative pleasure, but these truths were the life and food of his soul, and as his heart was affected with them, he wrote them with a spiritual warmth that is better felt than expressed. This is not, in inverted commas, Puritanism. This is living, experimental Christianity. And so he, being dead, yet speaks. To give you a taste of Goodwin's own teaching, our second selection this week is an excerpt from his Christ Set Forth as the Cause of Justification and as the Object of Justifying Faith. In the book, Goodwin expounds Romans 8.34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea rather, that is risen again, 
who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Goodwin declares his intention to do two main things in the book. First, to direct the faith of his readers to Christ as the right object of justifying faith, and second, to encourage the faith of his readers by unpacking the four actions of Christ spoken of in Romans 8.34, namely Christ's dying, Christ's rising, Christ's being at God's right hand, and Christ's interceding for us. These wonderful actions of Christ are the four particulars that Goodwin mentions in the opening paragraph of the following excerpt. Chapter 3. First, directions to Christ as the object of faith. How, in a threefold consideration, Christ is the object of justifying faith. But ere I come to encourage your faith from these, let me first direct and point your faith aright to its proper and genuine object, Christ. I shall do it briefly and only so far as it may be an introduction to the encouragements from these four particulars, the things mainly intended by me. 1. Christ is the object of our faith, in joint commission with God the Father. 2. Christ is the object of faith, in opposition to our own humiliation, or graces, or duties. 3. Christ is the object of faith, in a distinction from the promises. First, Christ is the object of faith in joint commission with God the Father. So here, it is God that justifies, and Christ that died. They are both of them set forth as the foundation of a believer's confidence. So elsewhere, faith is called a believing on him, namely God, that justifies the ungodly. Romans 4, 5, and a believing on Christ, Acts 16, 31. Wherefore, faith is to have an eye unto both, for both do alike contribute unto the justification of a sinner. It is Christ that paid the price, that performed the righteousness by which we are justified, and it is God that accepts of it and imputes it unto us. Therefore, justification is ascribed unto both. And this we have in Romans 3.24, where it is attributed unto them both together. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Where we see that God's free grace and Christ's righteousness do concur to our justification. Christ paid as full a price as if there were no grace shown in justifying us. For mercy baited Christ nothing. Publisher's note, baited or abated is used here in the sense of reducing the price Christ had to pay to secure the justification of sinners. For mercy baited Christ nothing. And yet, that it should be accepted for us is as free grace and as great as if Christ had paid never a farthing. Now, as both these meet to justify us, so faith in justification is to look at both these. So it follows in the next verse, Romans 3.25, 
whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. And though it be true that God justifying is the ultimate object of our faith, for Christ leads us by the hand, as the word is, Ephesians 2.18, unto God, and in 1 Peter 1.21 we are said, by Christ to believe on God who raised him, that so our faith and hope might be on God. Yet so, as under the New Testament, Christ is made the more immediate object of faith. For God dwelling in our nature is made more familiar to our faith than the person of the Father is, who is merely God. Under the Old Testament, when Christ was but in the promise, and not as then come in the flesh, then indeed their faith had a more usual recourse unto God, who had promised the Messiah, of whom they then had not so distinct, but only confused thoughts. Though this they knew, that God accepted and saved them through the Messiah. But now, under the New Testament, because Christ as mediator exists not only in a promise of God's, but is come and manifest in the flesh, and is set forth by God, as the Apostle's phrase is, to transact all our business for us between God and us, hence the more usual and immediate address of our faith is to be made unto Christ, who, as he is distinctly set forth in the New Testament, so he is as distinctly to be apprehended by the faith of believers. Ye believe in God, saith Christ to his disciples, whose faith and opinion of the Messiah was till Christ's resurrection, of the same elevation with that of the Old Testament believers, believe also in me. John 14.1 Make me the object of your trust for salvation as well as the Father. And, therefore, when faith and repentance come more narrowly to be distinguished by their more immediate objects, it is repentance towards God, but faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 20.21 20, Not that God and Christ are not the objects of both, but that Christ is more immediately the object of faith, and God of repentance, so that we believe in God through believing in Christ first, and turn to Christ by turning to God first. And this is there spoken, when they are made the sum of Christian doctrine, and of the apostles' preaching. And, therefore, the faith of some being much enlarged to the mercies of God and his free grace, and but in way of supposition unto Christ, or in a taking for granted that all mercies are communicated in and through Christ, yet so as their thoughts work not so much upon, nor are taken up about Christ, although this may be true faith under the New Testament, in that God and his free grace is the joint object of faith, together with Christ and his righteousness, and the one cannot be without the other, and God ofttimes doth more eminently pitch the stream of a man's thoughts in one channel rather than in another, and so may direct the course of a man's thoughts towards his free grace, when the stream runs less towards Christ, yet it is not such a faith as becomes the times of the gospel. It is of an Old Testament strain and genius.
whereas our faith now should, in the more direct and immediate exercises of it, be pitched upon Jesus Christ, that, through him, first apprehended, our faith might be in God, as the ultimate object of it, as the Apostle speaks, 1 Peter 1.21. And so much for the first. Two, the second is that Christ is to be the object of our faith in opposition to our own humiliation, or graces, or duties. First, we are not to trust nor rest in humiliation, as many do, who quiet their consciences from this, that they have been troubled. That promise, Come to me, you that are weary and heavy laden, and you shall find rest, hath been much mistaken. For many have understood it as if Christ had spoken peace and rest simply unto that condition, without any more ado, and so have applied it unto themselves, as giving them an interest in Christ, whereas it is only the invitement of such, because they are most apt to be discouraged, to come unto Christ, as in whom alone their rest is to be found. If, therefore, men will set down their rest in being weary and heavy laden, and not come to Christ for it, they sit down besides Christ for it, they sit down in sorrow. This is to make John, who only prepared the way for Christ, to be the Messiah indeed, as many of the Jews thought. That is, to think the eminent work of John's ministry, which was to humble and so prepare men for Christ, to be their attaining Christ himself. But if you be weary, you may have rest indeed, but you must come to Christ first. For as, if Christ had died only, and not arose, we had been still in our sins, as it is 1 Corinthians 15.17, so though we die by sin, as slain by it, as Paul was, Romans 7, 11 to 13, in his humiliation, yet if we attain not to the resurrection of faith, so the work of faith is expressed, Philippians 3, 12 and 13, we still remain in our sins. Secondly, we are not to rest in graces or duties. They all cannot satisfy our own consciences, much less God's justice. If righteousness could have come by these, then Christ had died in vain, as Galatians 2.21. What a dishonour were it to Christ that they should share any of the glory of his righteousness. Were any of your duties crucified for you? Graces and duties are the daughters of faith, the offspring of Christ, and they may in time of need indeed nourish their mother but not at first beget her. In the third place, Christ's person, and not barely the promises of forgiveness, is to be the object of faith. There are many poor souls humbled for sin and taken off from their own bottom, by which Goodwin here means taken off from their resting place or foundation or grounds for confidence, who, like Noah's dove, fly over all the word of God, to spy out what they may set their foot upon, and eyeing therein many free and gracious promises, 
holding forth forgiveness of sins and justification, they immediately close with them and rest on them alone, not seeking for or closing with Christ in those promises, which is a common error among people and is like as if Noah's dove should have rested upon the outside of the ark and not have come to Noah within the ark, where, though she might rest for a while, yet could she not ride out all storms, but must needs have perished there in the end. But we may observe that the first promise that was given was not a bare word simply promising forgiveness or other benefits which God would bestow, but it was a promise of Christ's person as overcoming Satan and purchasing those benefits. The seed of the woman shall break the serpent's head. So when the promise was renewed to Abraham, it was not a bare promise of blessedness and forgiveness, but of that seed, that is, Christ, as Galatians 3.16, in whom that blessedness was conveyed. In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So that Abraham's faith first closed with Christ in the promise, and therefore he is said to see Christ's day and to rejoice in embracing him. And so all the succeeding fathers that were believers did, more or less, in their types and sacraments, as appears by 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2. And if they, then much more are we thus to look at Christ, unto whom he is now made extant, not in promises only, but is really incarnate, though now in heaven. Hence our sacraments, which are the seals added to the word of faith, do primarily exhibit Christ unto a believer, and so in him all other promises, as of forgiveness, etc., are ratified and confirmed by them. Now there is the same reason of them that there is of the promises of the gospel. For they preach the gospel to the eye, as the promise doth to the ear. And therefore, as in them the soul is first to look at Christ and embrace him as tendered in them, and then at the promises tendered with him in them, and not to take the sacraments as bare seals of pardon and forgiveness, so in like manner, in receiving of or having recourse to a promise, which is the word of faith, we are first to seek out for Christ in it, as being the foundation of it, and so to take hold of the promise in him. Hence, faith is still expressed by this, its object, Christ, it being called faith on Christ. Thus Philip directs the eunuch, Acts 8.35, Believe on the Lord Jesus. The promise is but the casket, and Christ the jewel in it. The promise but the field, and Christ the pearl hid in it, and to be chiefly looked at. The promises are the means by which you believe, not the things on which you are to rest. And so, although you are to look at forgiveness as held forth in the promise, yet you are to believe on Christ in that promise to obtain this forgiveness. So, Acts 26.18 It is said of believers by Christ himself that they may obtain forgiveness of sins by faith which is on me. 
And to clear it farther, we must conceive that the promises of forgiveness are not as the pardons of a prince, which merely contain an expression of his royal word for pardoning. So as we, in seeking of it, do rest upon and have to do only with his word and seal, which we have to show for it. But God's promises of pardon are made in his Son, and are as if a prince should offer to pardon a traitor upon marriage with his child, whom in and with that pardon he offers in such a relation. So, as all that would have pardon must seek out for his child, and thus it is in the matter of believing. The reason of which is, because Christ is the grand promise, in whom all the promises are yea and amen. 2 Corinthians 1.20 And therefore he is called the covenant. Isaiah 49.8 So that, as it were folly for any man to think that he hath an interest in an heiress's lands, because he hath got the writings of her estate into his hands, whereas the interest in the lands goes with her person, and with the relation of marriage to her, otherwise, without a title to herself, all the writings will be fetched out of his hands again. So is it with all the promises. They hang all upon Christ, and without him there is no interest to be had in them. He that hath the Son hath life. 1 John 5.12 Because life is by God's appointment only in him, as verse 11. All the promises are as copyhold land which, when you would interest yourselves in, you inquire upon what Lord it holds, and you take it up of him, as well as get the evidences and deeds for it into your hands. The Lord of it will be acknowledged for such in passing his right into your hands. Now this is the tenure of all the promises. They all hold on Christ, in whom they are yea and amen, and you must take them up of him, Thus the apostles preached forgiveness to men, Acts 13.38. Be it known that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And as they preached, so we are to believe, as the apostle speaks, 1 Corinthians 15.11. And without this, to rest on the bare promise, or to look to the benefit promised without eyeing Christ, is not an evangelical but a Jewish faith, even such as the formalists among the Jews had, who, without the Messiah, closed with promises, and rested in types to cleanse them, without looking unto Christ, the end of them, and as propounded to their faith in them. This is to go to God without a mediator, and to make the promises of the gospel to be as the promises of the law, Nehushtan, as Hezekiah said of the brazen serpent, a piece of brass, vain and ineffectual. Like the waters of Bethesda, they heal not, they cleanse not, till this angel of the covenant come down to your faith in them. Therefore at a sacrament, or when you meet with any promise, get Christ first down by faith, and then let your faith propound what it would have, and you may have what you will of him. There are three sorts of promises, and in the applying of all these, it is Christ that your faith is to meet with. 1. There are absolute promises, made to no conditions, 
as when Christ is said to come to save sinners, etc. Now in these it is plain that Christ is the naked object of them, so that if you apply not him, you apply nothing, for the only thing held forth in them is Christ. Two, there are inviting promises, as that before mentioned, Come to me, you that are weary. The promise is not to weariness, but to coming to Christ. They are bidden, come to him, if they will have rest. 3. There are assuring promises, as those made to such and such qualifications of sanctification, etc. But still, what is it that is promised in them, which the heart should only eye? It is Christ, in whom the soul rests and hath comfort in, and not in its grace. So that the sight of a man's grace is but a back door to let faith in at, to converse with Christ, whom the soul loves. Even as, at the sacrament, the elements of bread and wine are but outward signs to bring Christ and the heart together. And then faith lets the outward elements go, and closeth, and treats immediately with Christ, unto whom these let the soul in. So grace is a sign inward, and whilst men make use of it only as of a bare sign to let them in unto Christ, and their rejoicing is not in it, but in Christ, their confidence being pitched upon him, and not upon their grace. Whilst men take this course, there is and will be no danger at all in making such use of signs. And I see not, but that God might as well appoint his own work of the new creation within, to be as a sign and help to communion with Christ by faith, as he did those outward elements, the works of his first creation, especially seeing in nature the effect is a sign of the cause. Neither is it more derogatory to free grace or to Christ's honour for God to make such effects signs of our union with him than it was to make outward signs of his presence. Thank you for listening to the Banner of Truth magazine podcast. To subscribe to the magazine in print or digital formats, or both, see the show notes or visit banneroftruth.org.